I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And you're a very special advocate. I because am? Because you... Yes, you're... I mean, first of all, you had a title special for six years. Long gone. Uh, long gone. <laughs> and then you came, became a part of, of my film Push, and, and, and you have a very special role in the film. That's true. And then... With this podcast, you're still special. It's amazing. I mean, we haven't seen each other for a long time. Well, we haven't been in the same room or the same continent for a for long a time. For a very long time. Because you're in Ottawa, Canada. I'm in Malmo, Sweden. But anyway, Leilani, it's summertime. And here in Europe, we are allowed to travel. Lucky you. And, you know, in the European football championship that's ended with... You know, a win for Italy, the big ads was Booking.com. They were actually the main sponsor of the of the championship. That's tons of money. So these platforms are really big. Uh, and we've been talking about this before. Airbnb in special, the one who almost like created this, this new way of, uh, you know, finding a place to stay when, when you're traveling. And in the beginning, we loved it. Yep. And now, is it maybe 10 years later, Airbnb is going public, they're doing an IPO, and how much, what are, how much is the value of, the, of that company? Oh, I don't know, 100 billion? Oh, only 100 <laughs> billion. So it's, it's something has happened over, over something that was extremely charming has turned into a huge, powerful industry that is in many ways sucking out money from the local economy. It is. Well, that's what people say. I mean, that's the experience at local level. So it has morphed like so much of this kind of activity. Start small and then grow, grow, grow. And it was called the sharing economy. Is that sharing or is it something else? <laughs> Seems like it's taking away. It seems like it's taking away. You know what? We are a very special podcast and we have special guests. So today we have a professor in urban studies who's been investigating Airbnb for three years. And she's with us here. It's Claire Collum from, she's professor of the urban studies and planning at the Bartlett School of Planning in the University College of London. That's like a very cool place. Claire Collum, welcome to Pushback Talks. Hello. Good afternoon, European time, and thanks for um, having me. So, Leilani, you've, you've been talking a bit to, to Claire about uh, the Airbnb issue. What, what, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that uh, Claire is a real expert. And, you know, it's amazing, and, and Claire's work says it itself. It's amazing that these short-term rental platforms like Airbnb have proliferated, have become just the norm. I mean, everyone just uses them when they're traveling. And yet there's been very little research, especially at European level, about this phenomenon and its impact and what's happening. But Claire and a fellow researcher, Tatiana, whose last name I can't remember right now, have produced this incredible report. So I'm, I'm super happy to be talking with Claire. I'm glad that she agreed to join us on Pushback Talks. Yeah. T tell us about your study, Claire. 
So in a nutshell, um, the study is a study of how cities and city government are trying to regulate the phenomenon of short-term holiday rentals and the platform that mediate them. So we talk about Airbnb in the study, but it's not the sole focus. We focus really on um, what short-term rentals do to housing markets, how it's becoming controversial, and how public authorities are trying to regulate that phenomenon. And um, as Leilani said, it's a collaborative project that I'm doing with uh, three colleagues, Tatiana Morera and uh, Francesca Ottoli and Thomas Aguilera in France. So we've tried to look at different European cities and hopefully we can share a bit of this with you today. Do you remember when you, f- you, you yourself first stayed at an Airbnb? So you're gonna you're gonna find it unbelievable, but I never did. <laughs> so I have I have actually used um, some short-term holiday rentals, but um, booked through other platforms. So I have um, to confess to have used Bookings, for example, or before Airbnb existed with my family, we used to you know um, rent rural homes in the French countryside to go for the summer using a good old guidebook supplied by the um, uh, Office for Regional Tourism of the city. So the practices we're talking about, they did exist before Airbnb. You know, you could you could rent out a holiday home or a form of, of vacation rental, but but the emergence of Airbnb and similar platforms that followed really changed the, the, the nature of the phenomenon and made it explode and become a lot bigger. So it's not something entirely new. It's just the scope of it and the easiness of, of advertising a good that has changed significantly with uh, the creation of Airbnb in 2008. And Clara, I, I have to admit, I have been using Airbnb. And in the beginning, I really loved it because I was in somebody's home. You know, I could see their images on the fridge it was like and you could see the books in the bookshelf and you know the food they had at home and it, it was like it, it was actually really interesting and uh, but then suddenly I noticed that I, I was coming into a place and it was nobody's home it was for, for sure I mean it, the guy who gave me the keys, he was also taking care of 10 other apartments or 15 others or 20 others. You, you, not, you, you couldn't really know. And then the end, you end you, there was like almost like an office where you got the, the code to a, a key box somewhere. So it, it changed kind of rapidly. Can you, is that what you have seen in your investigation? Yeah. So what you're describing is really the transformation from the sharing economy, the collaborative economy in the uh, early meaning of the term into what some people have called platform capitalism. That's really this transition that we have witnessed. And we, in our study, we have relied on the fantastic work done by others. We've not done the number crunching, but many colleagues, um, economist geographers have done really interesting number crunching to actually show how the structure of the offer on Airbnb has changed over the years. So as you know, the company at the beginning uh, marketed itself as offering the possibility for someone like you and me to rent our home when we go on holiday or rent a room in our home uh, and for people to live like a local, their slogan. What we have seen in many destinations is that this part of the Airbnb offer, so somebody's home rented a few weeks a year whilst you're on holiday or room, is now a small part of the offer in a given city. But basically, we now have a situation where a large part of the offer on Airbnb is no longer somebody's home. It's a flat that is empty and it's rented the whole year round to tourists or visitors. And as you said, it's it's not a home and it's managed professionally by operators that very often have several properties. Uh, just to give you an example, just before COVID hit, at the end of 2019, um, some data that was uh, compiled from um, Inside Airbnb, which is a, a data activist project led by a wonderful activist Murray Cox, is showing to us that um, the percentage of ads 
for a flat that's available more than 60 days per year. So we can imagine that if it's available more than 60 days per year, it's no longer the home of someone. It ranges from about 25% in Berlin to 88% in Rome and 85% in Lisbon. In other words, nearly 90% of the offer on Airbnb in Rome are flats that are not inhabited by anyone. And that means basically that somebody is not living there any longer. So exactly. I mean, it's a local people who have been pushed out, as we say, and and of course, can you see then the effect on the local on the local street level? I mean, what happens to the to the to the local shops and the local? I mean, the, all the local activities that are servicing the local population. Can you can you notice that? It's actually, not that easy to measure exactly what's happening and how many homes are removed from the housing market. You can you can do this with approximation based on on um, scraping data from from the website of Airbnb, but that's not that easy. But but in Europe, what we have seen is. In some cities that are very popular with visitors, so Lisbon or Barcelona, for example, Paris, you know, the tourist city, we do have evidence that in some popular neighborhoods, a huge number of flats are being removed from the long-term housing market, um, sometimes in, in forcible ways. So in, those, in, in some neighborhood of the cities, there's clear evidence that many homes are being, are being transformed into short-term rental. Uh, a colleague, Agustin Cocolagant, has done a study of Barcelona, of the old city, the Barrio Gotico, if you know that part of Barcelona. And in 2016, through a, a very close study of a couple of streets in that historic center, it showed that in a few streets, up to 50% of the housing stock in that street had turned into a holiday rental. Now, that is at the level of a few streets in a very popular neighborhood. If you look at the statistics at the level of the city as a whole, about 2% of the housing stock is short-term rental. So here it's important to mention this, that you may look at the statistics at the level of the city and it looks very low, but it's disproportionately located in a couple of neighborhoods which are touristy, which are um, desirable, which have tourist attraction, or they are by the seaside. And in those neighborhoods, it can have a disproportionately you know, huge impact and really transform the shops because obviously the demand changes. You know, Little grocery stores will close down and they'll be replaced by bike rentals. But it also changes the whole dynamics, the use of public space, um, how uh, people live in the building, the noise, um, the nuisance that this can cause. And all of this is very well documented and there's plenty of... Know, media reports about this. So, so you're right, it's changing neighborhoods, but it's important and fair to say that it is certain neighborhoods that are really affected and others in the same city are, are very little affected because there's a very low level of short-term rentals. And so it's extremely uneven uh, within, the same, um, within the same city. This last point that Claire is making, our listeners may recall, and certainly Frederick, you'll recall, we interviewed a fellow in Athens named uh, Sotiris Sideris, who's a data journalist, data scraping journalist, uh, data journalist. And he talked to us about a community in Athens. It was a low income community, um, you know, not just, you know, working class people. And I think it was something like 90%, Frederick? Se 70%, 70%. In, two, in two years. Had to move out. Now that I mean, as Sotiris, it blew my mind. So there was a, this neighborhood in Athens, and and before Airbnb found it, kind of it, it I mean, seventy percent of the people had to leave. And and it was a it's a you know touristed area or an area near tourist sites. Athens, of course, is a tourist destination, a huge tourist destination. And you know, I've read figures out of Paris, something like between 15,000 and 25,000 um, units taken off 
the long-term housing market and turned into Airbnb or short-term rentals. From from my point of view as a human, you know, I'm concerned with human rights. And so, um, while obviously it's not great, you know, if Airbnbs or short-term rentals create noise and that kind of thing in a community, um, there's less regulations or, you know, human rights don't regulate noise generally. Um, but human rights do regulate access to affordable, decent, adequate housing. And if so many units are being taken off the long-term housing market, we know that people will suffer because then they're having less available units to rent or uh, live in. And so that's my main concern. The As you say, Claire, the problem is really nailing down the numbers you know like the numbers for Paris are between 15,000 and 25,000 right that's a huge difference Uh, but still we know that the impact is to take units off the long-term rental market and we also know then the flow-on effect of that within communities is likely to be a more transitory uh, population. And so what what does that mean for a city when you have people coming and going? It obviously changes the nature of the services, whether you have schools put there, whether you have community parks, etc. I mean, there's it, it changes the nature of how a city is used. Yeah, I mean, I remember one of our last stops when we were still traveling with the film, it was Prague. And there were some activists who took us to the, the famous uh, Václav Square in Prague. It, it's, it's a very big, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't look, look like a square because it's really big, big, big. Um, and she said, we, we are the last tenants on this, the whole square. The rest is gone. So they were like, it's, and they were like, about to get evicted also so this is like in 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 a in a tourist city and of course then the local shops go and they're replaced by souvenir shops or alcohol shops or whatever that will service the tourists so even if you stay you suddenly you it's everything is more expensive for you because the shops are selling expensive water to tourists instead of uh, servicing the local community. Claire, you've been, you looked into Prague. It's, it's on your list, isn't it? Yeah, so Prague is on the list. So Prague is obviously a city where there has been a significant explosion in uh, short-term rental. That's, this predated Airbnb. So Prague you know, changed very dramatically in the 1990s after the transition to a capitalist market economy um, when, when uh, after the fall of, of the socialist regime. And I think this, this leads me to make an important point in this whole discussion, which is although the demand for short-term rental and the conversion of housing units into short-term rental is a key force of change in those neighborhoods. We shouldn't forget that there are other factors that are at play. And so we can't just pen the whole blame, if you want, on, on both platforms and short-term rental operators. Usually, when you look at a city like Prague, there are many different processes at stake. That, and, and you talk about all of them in the documentaries. There's financialization. Prague has been a huge destination for foreign investment and second homes for you know wealthy American expats. Um, in in uh, cities of Southern Europe, um, there was historic city centers, and that was the case of Prague. So they were quite derelict 20 or 30 years ago. So a lot of the homes were actually empty. 
And through tax breaks, through government policies, um, there was lots of incentive that were created to invest into these very old, you know, um, theoretic historic building. And locals didn't necessarily want to um, return to them. Sometimes it was foreign investment or hotel chain or, or whatever that had the cash if you want to refurbish the, these buildings. Um, and so you, we need to look at a whole series of policies, uh, tax breaks, for example, rental deregulation. Um, if you look at the example of Lisbon, the golden visa policy, attracting wealthy expats to invest in real estate. This was also a national policy that had a huge impact on the transformation of the old city. So I think when we talk about Lisbon, Prague, etc., we need to bear in mind that it's not just the tourist demand and short-term rental classical uh, in a classical way, if you want, but it's also a whole series of other policy decision and processes that are sort of at play and combine uh, with each other from classical gentrification to financialization to uh, processes of regeneration and, and tax breaks, etc. And, and, and that makes the whole thing quite difficult to disentangle. Um, and this is actually sometimes used by the advocates who are against the regulation of short-term rental. One of the arguments that we've heard in interviews very often is, we are not responsible for the housing crisis. There are so many other factors at play. So why are we the scapegoats in these regulatory policies? So I think it's it's something that's important to mention because even in very tourist cities where this is a huge phenomenon, there are other processes and forces that are sort of combined. And Prague is a good example to explain the transformation of the historic center into, you know, nearly a ghost town where locals don't live so much. Mm. No, of course. I mean, we that's something we've seen so many over and over again, that people with too much money, they're looking for undervaluated assets. And they found out that houses are will always be something you can place your money on top of. And that's been in Barcelona and Berlin. And for a long time, of course, it's been kind of cheap to buy houses, real estate in those cities. And then suddenly Airbnb is offering a, a business model for them who owns the houses. It's much better business than having tenants. You know, in most countries, tenants come with rights. And, uh, and the Airbnb guests, they just check in and check out. So it's, it's kind of easier to handle. And then the market is putting up the price or putting it down. You can, you can change the price every day if you want to. Yeah, well, and when you can, you know earn 250 euros in one night versus a thousand or two thousand euros over the course of an entire month the business model of grow 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 and profit 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 is of course short-term putting your place on for short-term rental makes better economic uh, sense um, I, I want to just comment, I really like what you said, Claire, about the fact that it, these sorts of things are within a broader context. So short term rental platforms are within a broader context. And they aren't the so you know, the the idea that they aren't the cause of the uh, housing crisis, I would agree with that. I, I, you know, push the film puts Airbnb in the context of financialization. Um, I'm in the midst of developing some directives, human rights directives on financialization, and Airbnb is but one portion. But I will say that what's so interesting or problematic about things like this, um, like these short-term platforms, is they change an entire business model. So the flow on effect, you know, so for example, when I was in San Francisco, and I think once in Toronto, I stayed at these, this place that wasn't a hotel, 
But it wasn't exactly an, an Airbnb because it was an entire building that had been purchased for short-term rentals. And so so that's a new uh, sort of hybridy model of quasi hotel but there's no check-in there's no lobby there's no you do everything online you're given a code you enter your room um and it's not really an apartment it's more like a hotel room uh but it is part of this short-term platform so it spawns it, it has spawned a whole industry um is my point i guess uh, so it's it's sort of deeper i think than some people think it's not just about the few units here and there in a city, um, or even, uh, you know, it's it's entire buildings being built and purchased for short-term platforms. No, that's important, what you just said, which is, I mean, the platform is effectively uh, a tool that facilitates profit accumulation. And, and that tool is going to be used differently. You're going to have, as we said, the classical model of an individual tenant or owner-occupier who is renting a room occasionally to make some cash. And and in Europe, and especially in Southern Europe, where the population has suffered a lot after the 2008 recession, this is an argument you hear a lot from normal people. Like, I need to rent my flat from time to time to make me ends meet. But as you said, that, that tool has been seized by people who have much more speculative and purely profit-making views. And that can be small-scale amateur landlords who buy four or five flats and they just live off this. You know, retired people, people who lost their jobs, who so you have like the sort of small-scale entrepreneurship. But increasingly, we're seeing the entry of massive multi-property landlords who are buying hundreds of properties. Um, and we have evidence, and that's very difficult to trace. We have not yet, we have ourselves not done work on this, but we have colleagues in Lisbon, for example, who've done great work trying to see the entry of real estate investment and wealth and asset management companies. So the institutional investment funds, the pension funds that you're talking about in the documentary, they're slowly entering this market. And as you said, it's not just buying a flat here and there. Sometimes it's actually buying an entire building and converting it or even building building new built um, apart hotel, whatever they are called. Um, and, and, and basically that new built is entirely for the purpose of being transformed into a short term. Let. So it's, it's definitely creating new markets and new opportunities because because it is so easy, basically. Uh, Claire, I mean, you've been looking into 12 cities around Europe and of course you also have an out look to the rest of the world. But there is, I mean, that's something we've been talking about. There is a, a pushback from cities. They want to try to do something. The city of Amsterdam has tried, been trying to, to ban Airbnb in the whole city center or the canal district. The city of Lisbon has been doing a lot of stuff, Barcelona and so on. Where, can you update us? Where are we at that right now? What is the most inspiring things happening right now? So it's true that many European cities about five years ago, five, six years ago, I would say, have started to feel the pressure to stop, to regulate the phenomenon of short-term rental. And, and it's interesting to see that it happened differently in different cities. So in some cities like Barcelona, this was under the pressure of citizens' movement, grassroots mobilization, housing activists. Um, and, and it was very much driven by citizens who were complaining about the impact on their neighborhoods. And in other cities, it's been driven by the hotel industry, because obviously the hotel industry sees this as a, as a competitor. So, so in different cities, you have different groups, you know, sort of left-wing progressive politicians, social movement, the hotel industry that have been calling for more regulation. And different cities have responded differently. So we've, we've tried to compare a little bit what's going on in these 12 cities. And you can sort of see the responses on the continuum from relatively laissez-faire. We don't regulate too much. We don't do much. And that would be 
Prague for the moment, Italian cities like Milan or Rome, where there's very minimal intervention. There's just some attempt at getting tax paid on the income generated and um, to you know generate public money, but that's it. There's not much more than this at this point in time. This may change in Prague, there are demands. And then you continue along the spectrum, you have cities that are in the middle, like London and Paris, where the city's authority's position has been to distinguish between the speculative short-term rentals, so the you know, multi-property owners who rent 10 properties and evict 10 and have stricter rules applying to these. Um, so in Paris, for example, if you want to uh, convert your housing unit into a short-term rental, in theory, you're supposed to provide an equivalent surface for long-term housing as a replacement. It's a compensation provision. That's one example. And in those cities, the idea is to tolerate and accept the occasional non-professional rental, so the original home sharing, if you want. So many cities are trying to make a distinction in their regulation between the commercial profit-oriented rental of a, an empty housing unit that's not a home, but whilst allowing normal people to rent their home temporarily. And so, and that's not easy sometimes to, to do that. And then on the, on the final end of the spectrum, you have cities that you have mentioned, which have taken much more interventionist policies. And um, in, in, in the 12 cities we've looked at, they are Berlin, Madrid, Barcelona, Amsterdam primarily. So Amsterdam has created a system of, of uh, registration and permits for different types of short-term rentals. So they make a distinction between a commercial short-term rental, uh, the, the rental of a room. So you have different categories here. And as you said, they recently um, actually banned the granting of new licenses, you need a license to operate a short-term rental. And they've banned uh, these new licenses in three historic districts in July 2020. But you will probably know that in March 2020, when this was crushed by court on the ground, this was an extreme measure that was actually infringing on the right to use free property. Another example for, uh, that I could quote is in Madrid in 2019, the then uh, left-wing city government, it has changed since, and, and, and um, passed a plan where they required short-term rental apartments to have a separate entrance, a separate door that would not use the staircase and the lift. Now, if you know Madrid, it's apartment blocks. So basically, it's virtually impossible. And that was a sort of subtle way of effectively making most short-term rentals actually illegal by putting a condition that is so strict that most of them will not comply. Um, and I just quote a few other examples in the city. So in Barcelona, what the city government has done is to freeze the existing number of licenses that exists for commercial short-term rental. They are just under 1,000 and no new license can be granted since 2015. So you do have those flats that already exist, but technically uh, any person operating a short-term rental without a license is, is illegal. Just to mention one of the late arrivals in this league of cities that are trying to regulate. So Lisbon, um, in Lisbon, there was no regulation for a long time because the national government had not given the city council the actual legal means to regulate. This was changed through a law that was passed in the Portuguese parliament in 2018. And the city council is now attempting a new method of regulation that works through a system of quotas. So they've defined neighborhoods which are saturated by short-term rentals. And so in neighborhoods where it's estimated that there's more, more than 20% of the housing stock that's allocated to short-term rental, no new license can be granted. So the idea is to try and create a balance or an equilibrium, if you want. So these are examples of some of the methods and instruments that have 
that have been used by by city council. And it's interesting because they they try to do this differently. Some are using land use planning regulations, some are using housing regulations, some are using taxation, some are using economic and business licensing. So you have different experiments with different policy instruments. And then Airbnb fights back. As we can, that's what, that's what we see with all these big comp- companies. They have an army of lawyers, and they are now. You can see that Amsterdam is in in a legal fight, and this is obviously something that happens all around. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, and Claire, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that Airbnb in particular is incredibly litigious. So, uh, whenever cities have tried, or even national governments have tried to implement some policy regulation, their first step is to challenge it through litigation. Um, I don't know if that's still the case in the this COVID era and the post-COVID era, but, uh, um, you know, fighting tooth and nail for their, for their business model. And I think they often use the fact that all they are is a platform. They aren't the housing itself. They aren't the apartment. They're just a platform. Um, so I don't know, Claire, if you can reflect on that. Hmm. So you've just made a really important point, which is when we talk about the regulation of short-term rental, we have two separate things to regulate. We have the short-term rental and the people who operate them, and then we have the platforms, and they are separate objects. One is a transnational company, and as you said, they pretend they are just an intermediary, and the other is a service provider doing a business in in a home, basically. Um, And that's what makes the whole thing quite tricky. But you're right in saying that um, not just Airbnb, but large-scale platforms and also the professional association of short-term rental operators, so they have federations, um, they have in most of the cities we've looked at challenged in court the new regulation. So in Barcelona, this restrictive plan that was passed in 2017, there's about 100 court cases lodged against it by all sorts of actors. They can be an individual landlord, they can be a professional association of holiday rentals, and they can be, of course, big platforms. So um, we, we have certainly heard it in all cities, that there's a complete warfare against the regulations and a lot of political mobilization. But platforms do other things apart from legal mobilization. So Airbnb, as a company, has uh, an entire public policy unit. They've hired a lot of public policy advisors and lobbyists. They have actually developed themselves a public policy guidance that they try and bring to cities and say, this is how we want to be regulated. Please, this is this is the regulation that we would find acceptable. So they try to shape the regulations that they, they want to see. Um, and they try to collaborate in some aspect, for example, through voluntary tax collection agreements. So um, Amsterdam had one of them with Airbnb. I think they they stopped it now, where Airbnb collects the local city tax on behalf uh, of the city and gives them the money back, which is obviously a strategy of appeasement. If you you give money to the city, they are less likely perhaps to be quite demanding. So there's all sorts of ways through which platforms are basically trying to influence public policy. One technique that platforms have been using, which is quite new, They've actually mobilized their own users to do what's called grassroots lobbying. So in a city like Barcelona, they've sent a pre-written letter to all the people advertising a home on Airbnb and say, look, the city council is trying to regulate and this is going to you know, impinge on your rights to rent your home. Please write to your local councillor and oppose the regulation. So there's a new, and this is not unique to Airbnb, other platforms like Uber have used these new techniques of grassroots lobbying. And there's a fantastic report by uh, a colleague, uh, Luke Yetz from Manchester, who called the Airbnb movement for deregulation, how platform-sponsored grassroots lobbying is changing politics, really looking at how you mobilize your users 
to try and oppose regulation. And that's really interesting, I think. I think it's super interesting. One of the areas I have tried to look at is the political influence of the big financial actors. And now I can lump <laughs> Airbnb in with that because it's so... In, we're creating societies that are so completely unequal in so many different ways. And this is one of the ways that doesn't get talked about enough, the undue political influence of these big actors. You know, I look at these small NGOs and charities trying to, f and tenants, unions, tenants, organizing groups. They have no money, no resources, very little political clout, very little political power. And they're trying to go against these guys, they're mostly guys, who have a seat at the political table, who have all these resources, and as you say, Claire, can mobilize from even the grassroots. It's um, these are that's a kind of inequality I think that just doesn't get doesn't get discussed enough. But um, so now I can add that to my own arsenal. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> Claire. It's it's been amazing to have you here on on Pushback Talks, and uh, and it is full-blown summer now and, and some people actually want to go traveling so what do you recommend if people want to go to a city what shall we do so i think there's different sort of personal ethical compromises that you can do there's no idea solution you can decide to go to a conventional hotel or guest house that will pay local taxes and have safety regulation you can decide to use Airbnb or another platform, but make sure that you're trying to identify an ad that really is a home share, although it's difficult because we know many ads are posing as home share but are not. Um, you can try to go back to more regional platforms or, or advertising uh, websites that actually promote family-run bed and breakfast or, or rural home in the countryside, just like what we used to do 20 years ago, where, you know, you would just call the tourist office and say, what are the local families that run a home in that place? And in some cities like Barcelona, there's actually a publicly available database where you could check the address of the flat you're about to rent to check if it has a license and it's legal. And it's not something that we would think of doing, but that could be a way of just making sure you're not staying in an illegal apartment. And just, you know, going back to maybe classical forms of, of mobility, like youth hostels or camping sites, <laughs> what we used to do 30 years ago when we traveled Europe. Okay, it's good. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I've been trying to also, t I mean, if I've been using Airbnb, trying to stay with somebody, it's somebody in somebody's home. Uh, it's actually quite interesting because you also get to know people and you get local knowledge and so on. That was the initial idea, indeed. And that's what's, you know, this is what was good about the original model. Leilani and Claire, it's summer. Should we take a break and go out and try to enjoy it? Or do we have I to see keep working? I out my window. <laughs> It's luring me. That's good. I can actually <laughs> see it. Amazing to have you on, Claire. And if any of our listeners want to know more, we will put a link to your research uh, on, on the blurb under the, the podcast here. So I guess we, you, people can know more. And I, I, hope, I hope more journalists will pick up your story because this is really important that we keep talking about this. Thank you. And we have listeners in 114 countries, which we think is pretty cool. So it's uh, because this is a truly global uh, topic we are we are talking about, but we still need some money to produce this, and we've been doing it now for a full year without really having any funding at all. So if we should be sustainable for real, we need to to, to get some money. So please become patrons. How pe how should people do, Leilani? 
they just have to go to patreon.com and then look up pushback talks and then just you know it can just be a few dollars a month it doesn't have to be some big commitment but it can be an, an investment that makes you feel good at the end of the day that's what we all need isn't it invest <laughs> so you feel happier okay thank you very much thank you claire thank you leilani thanks frederick bye claire Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushtofilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>